Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Thank you all for being with us for this edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Uh, we got a lot to talk about. Let's get right to the panel today. They include Jim Galloway, who, of course, is with us uh, mostly on Mondays and Fridays, lead political writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Uh, Wednesday and Sunday are the days you see him in the newspaper itself. But, Jim, you oversee the Political Insider blog at AJC.com. Well, you, we always like to get a preview of your Sunday column. What are you writing about for Sunday? Uh, David Perdue jumping into this debate over pay for college athletes. Yeah, yeah. I, that's a fascinating story. Why don't we make a plan right now to talk about it on Monday's show? Okay, you got it. All right, sounds great. Uh, right next to you is Brian Robinson. He is. Uh, he was... Uh, uh, the uh, he would, first he served in the House, uh, U.S. House, worked with Lynn Westmoreland. Jim and I were just saying to you, Brian, Lynn Westmoreland was in here recording a show with us that so we're going to air next week about gerrymandering. It's always fun to see Lynn. I'm sure it's highly entertaining. Um, and you also were Nathan Deal's communication director first during his first term. And now you're out in the world doing you – know, Public relations, communications, government relations work of various kinds. Fair enough way to say it? Fair enough way to say it, yeah. Okay. All right. Across from me, if you're watching us on Facebook Live, mm. it's a boy-girl table today. Men on one side, <laughs> women on the other. Girl power. Uh, by chance, by chance. <laughs> Mo Ivory uh, is uh, back with us. Mo is a longtime uh, Democratic counselor, consultant, uh, former radio personality, uh, and and uh, you ran for city council three years ago now? Yeah, three years ago. Three years ago. Yeah. And you also work with Fair Fight Action, uh, Stacey Abrams' uh, group that it works on election issues, among many other things. It's really fun to have you worked, uh, that you're now working uh, into the rotation of our show. We're glad to have you as part of it. Thank you. You're welcome. Glad to be here. Patricia Murphy <laughs> joins us. Patricia Murphy, too, has a lot of experience working on the Hill for U.S. senators like uh, Sam Nunn, like uh, Max Cleland, and also and, and is a journalist who now writes a syndicated column. And I read you in Roll Call. That's the easiest way for me to find your columns. Um, and we're glad you could be here today, too, Patricia. Thank you. All right. Let's get started. We saw, Jim, the impeachment a vote came this morning. The House Judiciary Committee voted out the two articles of impeachment. It was never in doubt that they would pass, and it was never in doubt that they would pass uh, strictly on partisan lines, 23 to 17 in both cases. Uh, and uh, so they move on now to the U.S. House. This all comes after a marathon session yesterday. I mean, a session that started at 9 in the morning and didn't end until like 11 something. And there was another day before that, yeah. I believe. Yeah, and that's right. Was, yeah. That's right. Thank you. That's right. Um, so I want to focus, if we can, without getting into a debate about whether this impeachment has been the correct thing or not, I really would like to ask you all to weigh in on uh, the Georgians who have been involved in the Judiciary Committee on this. And I want to start, if I can, with an exchange that took place l yesterday, late afternoon, I think. Um, Florida Republican Matt Gates, during one of his five minutes uh, in the spotlight, decided to make some comments about Hunter Biden, who we know Republicans would like to see uh, have a much bigger role in all of this. And you'll hear Matt Gates pick up a story about a Hertz rental car that Hunter Biden had, I guess, in Florida. And so you'll hear him at the very beginning of what he says talk about Hertz. You will hear him then say a few things that are very personal about Hunter Biden. And then you're going to hear Fourth District Democrat Hank Johnson respond. Let's listen. Hertz called the Prescott Police Department and officers filed a narcotics offense report listing items seized in the car, including a past plastic bag containing white powdery substance, a Secret Service business card, credit cards, and Hunter Biden's driver's license. That is what we would call evidence. And I don't want to make light of anybody's 
substance abuse issues. I know the president's working real hard to solve those throughout the country, but it's a little hard to believe that Burisma hired Hunter Biden to resolve their international disputes when he could not resolve his own dispute with Hertz rental car over leaving cocaine and a crack pipe in the car. The pot calling the kettle black is not something that we should do. I don't know. I don't know what members, if any, have had any problems with substance abuse, been busted in uh, DUI. Uh, I don't know. But if I did, I wouldn't raise it uh, against uh, anyone on this committee. I don't think it's proper. Well, of course, Jim, uh, Hank Johnson knows exactly what he's talking about. In 2008, Matt Gates was arrested for DUI. The case was dismissed, but nevertheless, he was arrested. He was busted for having a DUI. People don't realize that Hank Johnson has one of the driest wits in the mm. U.S. Capitol. Uh, and he can he, – uh, uh, I, I have not seen the video – but I can tell you, he probably did not even crack a smile. Oh, no, I, I have yes. watched it. Yeah. <laughs> when you, I do know uh, Congressman Hank Johnson personally. And when you know how smart somebody is and how witty they can be, like you said, and it comes at the perfect moment, you feel so proud of them being able to bring that at that moment. And that's how I felt when I saw it. Um, not for any political reasons, but just for moral and ethical character compass type issues. And I thought to myself, how uh, rancid for him to even think that that would go over well, even with the base and, and everything that they want to hear to bring that up was just like, if you could go any lower, I've seen the, I thought I saw the lowest of the low already. But when that happened, I just thought this is really embarrassing for America on every single level. And I'm sure on the um, Republican side, it won't have any effect with the base except to say, yeah, I keep on going with that kind of stuff. But it just makes our um, entire democracy look really embarrassing to me. Patricia? So I uh, I saw Jim tweet out that Hank Johnson had a really dry wit. But to me, it did not sound like he was joking. Mm. So but, you know, you know, mm. Johnson a lot better than I do. But I do think he was very clearly um, talking about Gates' own DUI sure. in 2008. Oh, and absolutely. there is no, no, just no, no. Yes, an yeah, unbelievable no. amount of irony and hypocrisy that Gates would raise Hunter Biden's issues. But I think the fact that we're talking about this at the top of the show um, and uh, that so much of the hearing has been about the Bidens instead of the Trumps and the Trump administration is absolutely the goal of the president's communication on this entire issue, um, even raising it in Ukraine, um, even raising uh, Joe Biden's name and his son Hunter's name in Ukraine and asking for an announcement on an investigation um, does not appear to have been about an investigation, but has been about raising these this kind of speculation in the public. And Joe Biden, before he got into the presidential race, had very, very high um, ratings, specifically on honest and trustworthy. Mm -hmm. um, Americans uh, had watched him go through his own family tragedies, um, had a lot of affection for him in the Obama White House, and his positives were unbelievably high. And if you want to bring that number down, um, you know, there, there's sort of a joke that's not a joke on Capitol Hill that uh, to kind of impugn somebody's character, just say, so when did you stop beating your wife? I didn't say you were beating your wife, but when did you stop beating mm. your wife for a congressman? Um, it To even mount an accusation to have it be in the ether is wildly damaging to Joe Biden and Hunter Biden and um, I think that was the goal of the president's oh, all sure. along. Well, I, I do want to say, uh, to respond to something you said, I mean, the reason we're starting with that is rather than send you all down the rabbit hole of talking in general ways about the impeachment, I thought it'd be interesting to look at how members of George's delegation were Oh, I involved. totally agree. So, and Hank Johnson's right. cameo in yeah. international news mm -hmm. was yeah. uh, startling, but also very effective in his on his own part to say, listen, if you're going to be raising allegations, let's talk about your own allegations. But it is this, um, it's the tenor of that 
committee in these times. Ryan? You know, one thing about Hank Johnson is he runs the risk of this, of people not getting that he's joking because... But he wasn't joking, was he? Yes, he, he was specifically pointing to the blow of a joke. It was He was hilarious. being very ironic. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And, okay. then, and, you know, I mean, he can step on a one-liner like nobody's business. The way that the, the awkward... You know, the pot calling the kettle black is not something we should do. That's not like the, the clearest one-liner hit, but it was hilarious that he goes on to go, now, I would never bring that up against <laughs> another member of this committee. Yeah, yeah. That was that was dry and very okay. funny. I loved it. Um, now, granted, the danger was I was watching it, and because of his deadpan delivery and how and what we know about him, the flipping of Guam and th- this sort of thing, you don't know or assume that he was being ironic. So he probably should have, like, smirked a little bit or, you know, pointed a finger, just done something to let, let everybody know. So, he's, he's I, think the laughter, he's, I think the laughter in the chamber sort of cured that. And yeah. I, I hear what you're saying, but I think the laughter did that. And I also he wanted to He startled point, by it. Yeah. I also, well, I wanted to say that Gates, when um, Congressman Hank Johnson said that, seemed to—, to um, fall a little bit, even in his posture, uh, when the DUI um, statement came specifically. And I just don't think that he was expecting for Hank Johnson to, you know, retort in such a way. And so I felt like it was very effective. I, but I think so we can talk about how Hank Johnson delivered that. But I think that both Patricia and Mo make the bigger point, Jim. And that is uh, this is another case in which we have seen and and we have to say it's mostly been on the Republican side. I mean, Louis Gohmert the other day, apparently in the Judiciary Committee, uh, reeled off a list of names of people Republicans would like to have as witnesses. And in that list, he apparently revealed the name of the whistleblower. Uh, and and it was well known that that's what he was doing, In the, that he was trying to get the name out there. It, it's t- We have passed a line. And Democrats were somewhat guilty of, of some of this, too. There is no decorum left in this body in terms of this. The uh, personal attacks launched against Adam Schiff, the way he was described by some Republicans, um, the way other members of the committee, it, 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 the Hunter Biden stuff, it, I, I, it's, it's I not, found this not, all incredibly depressing to watch. It's, it's not as bad as it might have. It was in the 1850s, but it's it's yeah. coming close. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's 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 coming close. <clears throat> Are you? That's like what aboutism. What about the 1850s? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, I, but I think I, I think what we're I think what we're seeing is we are we are seeing a, a bit of kabuki theater play out where all where the end game is all. All but certain, and the only thing you can do is is kind of work the edges. And the Republicans are doing it right now, and they're they're with 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 their volatile statements. Uh, when once the House votes for impeachment and passes it to the Senate, the game will change, and you could have Democrats uh, playing something of a, the same game in the Senate. Um, I want to go, but you know, before we go on to a couple of the other Georgians and talk about them, you just said something I want to run past you, Patricia Murphy. We, we know it's a foregone conclusion that uh, the, the House is most likely probably next Wednesday going to vote out the articles in a, in a vote on the floor, and, and it'll go to the Senate for the trial where it, presumably the, the Senate will uh, find him not guilty of the charges. But there is a difference, is there not? between this very setting. Right now, a committee setting is one thing in, a, in the House of Representatives. Next year, sometime, January probably, we will be in the Senate chamber. The Chief Justice of the Supreme Court will be sitting in the president's seat, presiding over the hearing. The senators will be sworn in as jurors. And it's, the whole thing takes on a completely different tone, doesn't it? It takes on a really different tone. Yeah. It also takes on an entirely new set of rules. And um, there, are, we know that there are a number of things that the president would like to see in a Senate trial, including a number of witnesses and uh, people coming to the floor, that the Senate would have to approve by a majority vote. Mm -hmm. And there is not a majority vote for a number of the things, kind of the more theatrical moments that the president would love to see in there. Like calling Hunter Biden as a witness, There are not the votes for that. That's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. Also, I think you really do get to the sense of history there in the Senate. And you also get a number of senators who who have been in the chamber since— 
the last impeachment mm-hmm. of President Clinton and are experiencing it now from the other side with maybe a new sense of empathy from the other side's perspective. Um, and so it will be very different. We also know that Mitch McConnell wants to wrap it up very quickly. And as do, I think, most members, the outcome is really rather assured unless something really unusual happens. Well, to that point, Bill, I'd, I'd like to bring Brian in this sure. because he's got some congressional experience behind him. But the, the, the one surprise I think that to me this week brought was the, the second article of impeachment, the contempt, the decision to go with contempt of, of Congress, Congress. Uh, just uh, citing uh, Trump's uh, uh, rejection of every subpoena, every call for a witness from from the administration, which I think is very smartly placed to the Senate's sense of of Congress as an institution. And I'm uh, if uh, talk about that a little bit, if you if you do do I I would not be surprised to see the first impeachment article uh, get fewer than than fifty votes, I, but I think that the contempt of Congress might get get more. Might, might reach a majority of senators. Mitch McConnell said last night that he doesn't think any Republican is going to break away from the party line on this, that the Democrats haven't made the case. And part of the, the strategy there is it's not as easy said as done. You've got a few Republicans who, for whom this is going to be a tough Susan vote. Collins, Susan yeah. Collins being one. Cory Gardner in Colorado mm-hmm. uh, is another. For somebody like David Perdue, it's – or – Kelly Leffler, it's a much easier uh, vote to acquit the president. I don't think that in today's world, Jim, that the institutionalism is there anymore. What you're talking about, this defending the prerogatives of Congress, that has gone by the wayside years and years ago. I mean, it really began to crumble after they start stopped doing earmarks. That was one of the last great congressional prerogatives and a great way to herd cats and get votes which is another reason why we don't get much done up there anymore is we've given we've given away those carrots but what you're talking about I think is a legacy of the past that is no longer relevant I'm too well, old I, I, I think that there and, are and I hate it I hate that I, I do think that there are institutionalists up there still in the Senate. But the, the question moves from should we send this for further review, which really is what an impeachment vote in the House yes. is, should we send this to right. a trial, versus does this president deserve to be removed from office in the same year that there is an election happening? It's real. There are such real consequences to it. I don't think I agree with Brian. I don't think institutionalism will overcome just the real world consequences of removing Donald Trump from office with an I vote. And then what does that do not only to your own reelection, but really to the country? What does that look like? Well, I'm glad you said put frame that in terms of what does it do to each person's reelection in the House already? There are members of that Judiciary Committee, Mo, who have had to make the calculation about how their vote will affect their reelection, one of them being Lucy McBath. I want to play a little sound of Lucy McBath's opening statement in the hearing on Wednesday evening. Um, And I I play it so that we can all listen to how carefully she tries to thread a needle here and talk about what she sees as her larger responsibility to get things done for the district and at the same time be true to her conscience in terms of the president. Let's listen. I promised I would work with the president when his policies are right for Georgia and stand up to him when they are not. And I am proud of our progress. I am proud to have passed bills that protect our communities. I am proud to have written a bill that was signed into law by President Trump, a bill that protects our veterans. But I am not proud of the president's actions that bring us here tonight. I have listened to our witnesses, I've examined the evidence from our intelligence community, community, and I've heard from the brave men and women who have dedicated their lives in service to our country, both at home and abroad. I am greatly saddened by what we have learned, and I am forced to face a solemn conclusion. I believe the president abused the power of his office, putting his own interests above the needs of our nation, above the needs of the people that I love and I serve. And for that, 
I must vote my conscience. And I do so with a heavy heart and a grieving soul. So, Mo, I let that play out a little bit longer because I thought it was um, an excavation into her, (laughs) truly into her heart. I thought it was an authentic statement, Mm -hmm. but it was also a statement that any member who's in a swing district like she is up in the 6th could have made. Uh, It's just interesting to hear how carefully she tried to parse all this. Yeah, I mean, I I have to say that, um, you know, I think Lucy is learning, um, Representative McMath is learning about, um, you know, politics and being a congresswoman. And so she has to be careful with her words, but I don't think her words uh, strayed from who she is, what she has always spoken about um, in, in this short time that she's been an elected official. And even before that, when she was advocating, you know, as a mother, you know, just trying to pass laws because of what happened to her son, Jordan. So I think she was right in line with um, everything that she has said. She's she's in a I don't think she's you know, we talk about her being in a tough position. I, I, I don't think she's in any tougher position than anybody else that is seeking reelection and has to, you know, cater towards their base. And I think she does that. I think she without changing who she was when she got elected. So I thought it was careful writing, but I thought it was right on, on point. You know, to, to your point, Mo, uh, that was she made that that address at about 10, 10 p.m. on Wednesday. Yes, that's right. OK. All right. 1013. All right. 1013. OK. <laughs> memory serves. Uh, and 48 hours later. Uh, 36 hours later, whatever, two days later, we haven't heard. Uh, there have been a few kind of email blasts from the NRCC, but you haven't heard anything from Karen Handel. Not a word. But on the other hand, Brian Robinson, I opened my Atlanta Journal-Constitution this morning and in the front section of the paper saw a full page ad. Now, I am really remiss in not having paid attention to who bought that ad. Do you know who it was by any chance? Attacking Lucy McBeth. It was wrapped in a Christmas sweater. It had a Christmas motif, a red knitted Christmas sweater. And basically, but copy was something that he said, she didn't give you a Christmas present. Lucy McBeth voted to impeach the president of the United States. So. So if it if not Karen Handel herself, she's letting Republicans carry the water for her. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure that her campaign did not buy a full page ad. I mean, no, 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 but, no. But, no but, sure. but that's, 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 that's very funny. I'll ask her about it. I'm actually I'm seeing her later today. That so I'll be sure to ask about what that's all about. But maybe Jen's making a different point, Brian, which is that uh, in the same way that Lucy McBath is being a little cautious in how she approaches her vote to impeach, Karen Handel's a little cautious about how much she wants to condemn impeachment in a district that she's got to weigh both sides in. This is as close to a 50-50 district as you're going to find right. anywhere in this country. So both sides have to be a little mm-hmm. bit careful. McBath knows that Though she beat an incumbent and won in a year where Brian Kemp won at the top of the ballot, there's still uh, a majority in the district that isn't fully there on impeachment. So a majority is against it. On Karen Handel's side, there's a clear majority that's not wild about Donald Trump. We we have Lucy McBath, not because Karen Handel didn't do an excellent job as congressman. She represented that district very well. She she hit on a lot of the things that matter in that district. It was all having to do with a reaction to President Trump. So both sides have got a delicate balance. Uh, Handle with college-educated white people who are her base, who uh, maybe are a little uncomfortable with Trump, and McBath with those swing, with, with that, that few number of swing voters who maybe aren't happy with impeachment. Patricia, how do you see that? And could that? grow, right? And that, that number could grow. And, which, and which, which one? Which the, number? The number that supports Lucy McBath, those swing voters who are not happy with impeachment. And as this continues, that number could grow. So I think Lucy has to continue to do what she did when she got elected and speak to that base, which I think she did effectively, because I believe that number will grow. Patricia, how did you read that? Uh, I I see it in a lot of the ways that Brian does. I mean, it's such a close district. Um uh, and Karen Handel lost it. So she can't be out there uh, at running the same kind of race that she ran yeah. the last time around, which yeah. was quite pro-Trump. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, what she says on impeachment really will be just about as important as what Lisa McBath says. Can I, can I add to that, to what Patricia is saying there? You know, one thing that is not Karen's fault, she got caught up in this whirlwind. It's 
we had a governor's race at the top of the ticket, and Stacey Abrams really did amazing well across the northern arc of what was the old traditional Republican areas of Georgia, and now mm-hmm. are, are switching pretty heavily. And the Republican Party in Georgia and Governor Kemp, their focus was on turnout in rural Georgia and in the exurbs and beyond. And one of the sacrifices that were made, and we all have limited resources, they, they made a strategic decision and they won, but Karen Handel's areas got left behind. There was not as strong of a Republican presence in North Fulton and in uh, De- North DeKalb and East Cobb as there has been in the past because Brian's voters were somewhere else. And so uh, it's an interesting dynamic. Republicans have to fix that in 2020 to give Karen and whoever is the nominee in the 7th District a chance. And that's what Kelly Leffler is all about. Yeah, Great point, Jim. Uh, before we take a break, let's listen to a final member of the Judiciary Committee from Georgia. Doug Collins, of course, he's ranking member and in many ways was the, prosec- uh, the uh, defense attorney for the president throughout the uh, hearings. At, 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 and, and so he we could have picked anything. I mean, we could have literally closed our eyes <laughs> and just pointed to a moment in anything that Doug Collins said and said, here's something that's kind of representative of the way he approached things yesterday. So we picked this. When I heard this one come up and confirm that abuse of power was one of their articles of impeachment, it was simply stunning. Abuse of power for article of impeachment means anything they want it to mean. It is the carte blanche coverage. It's saying, we don't really have a case to our caucus, but go out and make it up. Just go out and say what you don't like. When you get to a certain point and you can't make your case, when you can't factually add it up, then we've lowered the standard to where anything can be brought in. You can make it up, you can call it whatever you want, and you can go try and sell that to the American people, but, I, you know, they're not buying it. They're not. And it's going to get harder and harder for members to actually go to that well next week or go to that uh, ballot where they actually stick their card in and vote yes on abuse of power and then actually have to go back and explain that. It's easy in this room. You got help from your colleagues, but when you're back home trying to explain why you're going to take down a president duly elected over abuse of power because of some of the arguments we've heard this morning, that's just amazing. Patricia, uh, Doug Collins may be correct when he says the American people aren't buying it. The polls are, are squishy on that. They're back and forth. But he knows Democrats aren't making this up. He knows there is a factual case uh, but he has made this his presentation throughout on the basis that this is made up. It's a fraud. It's a sham. Um, how do you take the way he's handled himself in all this? Well, we know he's a very, very close with President Trump. Um, and this is the way Donald Trump wants it to be handled. Yes. And it's I think it's just about that simple. Um I think Republicans generally get into a very dangerous territory when they defend the substance of what President Trump did, uh, what he uh, admitted to, what he uh, what McMulvaney has admitted to, specifically saying political interference happens in foreign aid all the time. Get over it. Um, We have the transcript of what happened. The facts really are not in dispute, but it leaves the Republicans in an unfortunate situation of having to say, it's fine. It's fine. But you you hear um, you hear Doug Collins and he's not saying it's fine. He's there's a lot of focus on the process of the impeachment on the on the time of the votes, on the number of witnesses they've been allowed to call. Um, the Democrats really have used a, a relatively heavy hand, although not unprecedented in how many witnesses the minority is yes. allowed to call, who gets to call the votes, what time are they going to happen? Uh, I'm going to recess at midnight because we we don't want to do this in the dead of night. So the the Democrats have been very aggressive in that way. Um, but I don't think Doug Collins has any choice but to handle it the way right. he's done it. Yeah. And I think he's equipped himself very well. You know, there have been a lot of moments of l- pure lunacy in that committee <laughs> this <laughs> week. And his has been, I think, um, reasoned. It's been emotional, somewhat theatric. I don't think it really strays too far from uh, who Doug Collins is. And I think that he has um, tried at many points to speak out for the rights of the minority and the role of the committee as he sees it. Yeah, well, he's ranking member and he has tried to point out that Nadler has violated some of the rules that they laid out. You mentioned one of them, calling witness, letting the minority have an opportunity to call witnesses of their own. They steamrolled over right. that completely. Although the Trump administration, I think they have been uh, they 
have totally stonewalled this committee and made it very difficult right. for Democrats to close the deal, particularly on the case of kind of quote unquote bribery. Um, when the president won't come, when Mick Mulvaney won't come, yeah. when John Bolton won't come, there are people with firsthand knowledge of what happened who would not speak to this committee and will not speak publicly about it. And um, left to the, you know, the and the number of the witnesses that Republicans wanted to call were people like Hunter Biden right. and the whistleblower, yeah. and the Democrats had their reasons for shutting that sure. down. All right. Um, Before you move on, uh, one, no, one thing: go ahead. Uh, the the sweater ad that you mentioned. Yes. It's, uh, it was it was taken out by paid for by American First Policies, which is a pro Trump pack. Thank you for checking that out. Whose uh, money is that? Okay. Do we before, know? All right. Before we got to get to a break, but Brian, is there any downside? It's the AJC's money now. <laughs> <laughs> Brian. Obviously, Lucy McBath has to be a little careful. Is, is there any downside politically for Doug Collins to be as vociferous as he is in defending the president? No. None. I would say no immediate. I think right. four, six years down the road, if he's ever looking at a statewide office, it could come back. Well, look, four, six years down the road – Unless there's a major realignment, Georgia's going to be a democratic state. If you look at what's happened, uh, and that's my point. Yeah, that's the headline. Yeah, <laughs> Mo Ivory, Brian Robinson <laughs> just gave us a major head. This is a staunch Republican, Mr. Robinson. I've been saying this forever. Look, <laughs> Nathan, Nathan Deal won by Nathan Deal won by two hundred and fifty-five thousand votes in twenty ten. Yeah. Brian Kent won by fifty-five thousand, and that gap is closing every two years. Yeah. If you just if you look at, we have registered over three hundred thousand new voters since Brian Kemp was elected. Most of them are young and minority. Mm -hmm. They're not necessarily natural Republicans. The numbers are pretty stark. Now there could be a realignment. I mean, look, a lot of labor voters voted for uh, the conservatives in, in Britain yesterday, and that's why they had this massive win. There's going to come a point when the Democrats go so far left that minority voters. Um, particularly business owners who are Latino or African-American, are going to begin uh, to become Republican. I want to get you get a last word from you, Mo. Doug Collins, your take on what you yeah, saw. Yeah, I mean, I think the hysterics are, are, are getting an, sort of annoying to watch, like you said, or really depressing to watch. And um, I think he had nothing to say, so he continued to repeat himself. But on the point that you made um, about what will happen in the future, I mean, I think um, when there's no longer a, a Republican majority in the Senate or it flips or we're under a new president and this kind of scenario ever comes back again, there'll be all this tape rolling about the way that the arguments came um, and the way that Doug Collins and everybody else behaved during this. And then I think when the the situation is flipped, those will be used against them. Like we have seen so much tape of Mitch McConnell saying one thing yeah. and then flipping and saying, and now he's yeah. completely yeah. on the opposite side. I think those things do come back to haunt you at some point. And do we know the time stamp on that? No. But when, uh, when the tables turn, I think we'll see a lot of this video coming back. All right. I've got to get a break in. This is probably the latest I've ever gone without taking one. I'm, it, you know, both Sam and Tom are nodding like, <laughs> get to it, buddy. Here comes our break. Right. GPB brings you comprehensive news coverage, eye-opening documentaries, a safe space for children to learn, and resources for teachers and students. Your support makes all of this possible. And right now, your tax-deductible year-end gift to GPB will be matched dollar for dollar, thanks to Jane Hyatt at the Hyatt Fund Community Foundation of Mississippi. Donate online at gpb.org or call 800-222-4788. And thanks. Support for GPB comes from you, our listeners. And the High Museum of Art presenting an afternoon of sights and sounds on Sunday, December 15th at 4 p.m. featuring live music inspired by Romare Bearden's profile series from composer Dwight Andrews. Info at high.org. And the Macon City Auditorium and the Albany Municipal Auditorium presenting Little River Band performing classics such as Lonesome Loser, Lady, and more December 12th in Albany and the 13th in Macon. Info and tickets at Ticketmaster.com. Right. We're back on Political Rewind. Um, just a couple of quick announcements. Remember, Monday, January 6th, that's the date that we start our five-day-a-week schedule, Monday through Friday, 2 p.m. Frankly, you all really have been asking for it for quite a long time, so I'm going to 
be working out more in the weeks leading up until yeah. then. Well, cl- clearly this comes with a 20% raise. So yeah. What are you say yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, so we really are excited about being able to be on every day. And we really, it has been because you've been telling us out there in our audience that you'd like to hear us here. So we do what you tell us to. Patricia Murphy, let me turn to you. You were in Washington this week, and you told us before the show, you made an observation about what you saw that I think all of us were really fascinated by. Tell our listeners. So I went um, to D.C., as I periodically do. Uh, to I was meant to go to uh, cover the impeachment, and there I was frankly shocked how much else was happening on the House and Senate side that had nothing to do with impeachment that I decided to change what I was covering because the real story is behind the scenes and off of cable news and an incredible amount of bipartisan progress that's been made on some issues that have been um, stalled for 30 years. Democrats and Republicans are finding this impeachment window to be a really good time to get together behind the scenes and say, you know what, let's move that bill. Um, It's not something that's trying to be done under the dead of night. There simply is, um, it has, impeachment has created a very strange alternate universe, almost where the sun has been blotted out Mm. um, and a an immigration bill moved on the House floor, which which will have Republican support in the Senate um, that passed uh, last week. The USMCA, which is the update to NAFTA, something that Pelosi and Trump are both very pleased with, uh, uh, struck an agreement. There will be no government shutdown this year. There's not even a peep about it. There's going to be a full appropriations agreement um, that was struck late this week will pass next week. Um, And I was really amazed at the very fertile territory for legislative progress um, that even Devin Nunes is voting for some of this, at least Stefanik, uh, Matt Gates voting on some of these Democratic bills. People you do not expect are getting in on these bills um, because they also all of them want to have progress to take home that doesn't have impeachment written on it. Of course, Mo, the speaker in her Thursday news conferences and other opportunities mm-hmm. she's had to give interviews had tr- has tried to make a mm-hmm. point about this, saying we're doing a lot of other business. We're not. She's smart. She understands if if uh, uh, American voters think that all they're doing is impeachment, uh, that that's a losing proposition. So she's tried to emphasize this over and over again, but she doesn't get much. Uh, coverage, what things that Patricia's talking about surprised us. Right. And we're pretty knowledgeable about what's happening. Right. It was even in a CNN town hall uh, this past week that she tried to uh, move away from the impeachment conversation and to talk about some of these exact bills that you're discussing. And she had to even scold the uh, CNN anchor. I, I can't remember who exactly it was, but um, or his name is slipping me right now, but because he would not get off of impeachment. And even when she was trying to ask the question, answer the question about what was going on besides that, she was brought right back to impeachment even in her answer. So um, I think it's unfortunate for America that we don't know that the news is not, uh, cable news specifically, is not uh, speaking of these things because it distorts the way people vote when you don't know the full story. And so that, for me, uh, is very unfortunate. And I wish that more people would divert their journalism away from the cover story, as you did, and talk about these other things that are happening behind the scenes that are so important. Well, Brian, you were in a communications job on the Hill. You know how this (laughs) works. Yeah, I can tell you that uh, the House passing bills uh, not getting news coverage is not a new phenomenon that's just happened (laughs) during the Trump impeachment hearings. Uh, And hey, if a lack of attention is allowing us to actually do things that would be politically difficult else uh, at other times, uh, then hey, I'm all for it. We need to get some of these things done. I don't know which one's been held up for 30 years. But I can tell you that we're 20 years overdue on immigration Which, reform, yes. yeah. that we that we've got uh, that we're making progress on trade with China and with now with Mexico and Canada. And in very bipartisan ways, they're looking at prescription drug reforms to lower prices or keep at least cap the increase in price. So they're looking at things where there's agreement on both sides. But we're maybe breaking through. I hope I keep hoping we're going to break through this paradigm where I can't be for anything that Mo's for. 
Right. Right. I mean, maybe we're breaking through that. Sure. But, but like I, what it, you just said about um, health, about the prescription drugs, which is a major health care issue. Right. And immigration, which is a top issue in America. If there was an awareness that things are moving in these areas, I think that exact attitude of what I have to be against, what you're for, would begin to soften a little bit. I, I, I think so. what I think what we've got here is if you t- if, 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 if you drop the word impeachment and, and go to Trump, just go to Trump. You've got a a Republican. You've got a Republican members of Congress realizing that they can't be just Trump and nothing else, and you've got Democrats realizing they can't be anti-Trump and nothing else, and that's your common ground right there. Yeah. All right. It's been that I'm fascinated by what you said, and there are members who were on the Judiciary Committee who tried to to make that point uh, yesterday and and uh, day before saying what you're saying. We really do have an agenda that's bigger than uh, than impeachment. The American people don't get it, which is why our approval rating is at like at 14 percent or whatever. So thank you for bringing that to our attention. Did you write a piece for Roll Call? Is it in your syndicated column? Are we going to see be, it? Uh, it'll be on, in Roll Call on Monday and syndicated over the weekend. OK. Uh-huh. Uh, let me let me move on. Uh, Jim Galloway, uh, Chris Ray had the audacity, the FBI director who's an Atlanta lawyer, was until he moved to Washington to take on this job had the audacity to essentially contradict the president and uh, say a couple things. Number one, there's no he saw no sign that Ukraine in, in, in any way interfered with our elections. And number two, he has full faith in the IG's report about how the FBI launched its investigation. Uh, the president tweeted nastily about him. It was only one tweet. It was relatively mild compared to some of the things the president tweets out. He went went after him in Pennsylvania, too. Yes, that's right. That was the other thing he did. And David Perdue, who is probably the closest friend to Donald Trump on Capitol Hill, his most ardent supporter, actually made a statement saying, I support Chris Wray. I thought that was interesting. Is it because he's a hometown boy, Chris Ray? Why would that have happened? Yeah, we were we were talking about we were talking about college athletics uh, at the mm. time when I when I kind of uh, snuck in the the, the, the yeah right that was question. in your interview. Thank you for reminding me of that. But and and uh, I, I will tell you yes yes it, it, he's an Atlanta guy. Purdue is a Georgia guy, and there's a little bit of affinity there. Uh, David Purdue and I think Isaacson as well sat right beside Chris Ray when they introduced him at his confirmation hearing. So there's a little bit of bonding going on there. But I think you do have a Republican uh, Congress that is very, very aware that if Trump were to sack uh, uh, Chris Ray, that means he would have had three FBI directors uh, in less than four years. And I think uh, it, that would be a very, very hard to defend. Yeah. Would... Also, the FBI director is the only federal presidential nominee and confirmation that has a 10-year term. Right, right. That is specifically done to prevent politics from getting involved in the role and the work of the FBI. And um, the idea of having three FBI directors under one president, especially this FBI director, was confirmed by the Senate 92 to 5. You know, all Republicans voted for him as only Democrats who voted against um, is just is totally unacceptable in the Senate. It's it will never happen. It's, I, I thought it was a fascinating thing to watch. Uh, uh, I think that David Perdue also has to be very um, thoughtful about the blueing of Georgia and what he has ahead of him um, when he seeks his uh, reelection bid. Really? I do. I really, really do. Yes, I do. And I don't think that, I mean, I think every Republican would argue that like he has nothing to worry about at all. And I just don't think that that's the case. I think that he needs to be concerned about how he appears on every level. I think the hometown, um, you know, aspect of Chris Ray and his support there. And I think that, that this was a sort of little display of that. And everybody could agree with me, disagree with me on that. But I, I Believe that to the core let, let, that everybody thinks I, about. I'm sorry. That. Let me be clear on what I was really wondering about. Not that David Perdue doesn't have to worry about the blueing of of Georgia, but that David Perdue uh, was going to start moving a little bit away from Trump in hopes that uh, he won't be affected by. I mean, 
he, you're in for a penny, in for a pound, right? With David no, Perdue no, and no, Trump. This is, no, 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 no. This is look. This is this is what you've seen David Perdue start doing. I think uh, way back, even way back in August, with mm. some school initiatives and stuff. He is trying to establish an identity in addition to being a. Trump that's supporter. different yes, than taking yes. issue and, and with the is, president and, on and different that issues. Is, but but is, but yeah. but you can do that by by saying I support this FBI director. Okay. I don't want any more chaos. This is how you sure. develop. This is how. You, Brian was talking about the Republican need to restore the the, the suburbs of, of North Metro Atlanta. Which That's in part how you do that. And and Purdue is, is is really laser focused on there. And I, I you know, look, I, I just mentioned about the partisan equality that we're reaching here in the state. I do think David Perdue's in really good shape going into 2020. I think he has a little bit of leeway, partly because of the weakness of the Democratic field that is aligned against him and his strong fundraising numbers and his so own far. net his own net positive approval ratings are really good going into his his reelection year. But Jim and I were at a Purdue speech to the Atlanta Rotary a few weeks ago and both of us I turned around and like made eye contact with Jim at one juncture mm-hmm. because Purdue was so bipartisan and so much talking about civility and working with Democrats on things that are national priorities. These were not Trumpian language points. So, Mo, you, I, I take my hat <laughs> off to you. Well, you know, I just think that exactly those considerations have to come in play. There's a certain voter that, even if they voted for Donald Trump the first time, are really concerned about voting for him again for basic reasons like civility, basic reasons of the way that he presents. And so I think that anybody who just lines up with him, who has something to deal with, like a changing demographic in Georgia, needs to be aware of those type of All points. Right. And I, I think mean, that's what David Perdue is Let me is give doing. you the last word before a break on this, Patricia. You want to weigh in? I'm just drinking it all in. This okay. Is, <laughs> <laughs> all right. This is all news to me. All right. Then let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way. And when we come back, we uh, I want to talk a little bit about uh, Cobb County, the politics of Cobb County with Jim Galloway. You're listening to Political Rewind. Hi, Myra Flato. Why are diabetes patients turning to Craigslist, eBay, and social media to get their medication? This week on Science Friday, we take a look at fighting back against high-priced drugs, like online insulin exchanges and why people are turning to them. Could the hacker community help remove barriers to insulin access for needy patients? It's all on Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Join us today at 3 on GPB. Support for GPB programs comes from our listeners. And Georgia's DBHDD Office of Behavioral Health Prevention, urging folks to store and lock away all medications to keep them away from pets and children and prevent theft. Old meds can be disposed at Dropbox locations found at the DBHDD website. And Scott Antique Market, indoors this week at the Atlanta Expo Center, over 3,500 exhibitor booths with vendors from around the globe and items from all time periods. More information at scottantiques.com. Patricia Murphy, yes. Mo Ivory, Brian Robinson, Jim Galloway, here in the two ways at the Political Rewind studio today. Uh, Jim, uh, you wrote a column the other day that picks up on a big, big story going on in Cobb County right now, and that's the conditions at the Cobb County Jail, where seven inmates have died in a very short period of time under condi- situa- conditions that are unclear to in, in many ways, but you also tie it in to the re-election campaign of Neil Warren, who's been the sheriff in your county for... Since 2004. Okay. Tell us about what this uh, whole story... All right. Well, basically, the, the premise of the column is the fact that in Georgia, if you want to know where a county is headed politically, what you do is you look at the sheriff's contest. It is, that is, it is the foundation of political power, whether Democratic or Republican, in any county. And since, since, the, since Cobb has turned Republican in the early 80s, in the, in the late 70s, uh, we, we've only had two sheriffs, uh, both uh, Bill Hudson and then Neil Warren. And uh, Warren has had, uh, I mean, he started, I think he beat his Democratic opponent in 2004 with 66% of the vote. Four years ago, or in, in, in 2016, it was 56% of the vote. It is going down. Cobb is turning. And that, you know, the demographic challenges are enough. Uh, but then you've got these the you've got two issues with Warren that have jumped up, and one is the fact that yes, you've had seven people uh, die since uh, December 2018 uh, who are in custody. 
of, of the the sheriff's department. One was suicide. Others have been uh, shipped off to hospitals where they l- later died. A lot of accusations of improper care, and uh, and inadequate explanations that uh, that that he that he is not engaging right now. And you have, for the first time, two really viable Democratic candidates who are going after his job. You have a fellow named Jimmy Herndon. Uh, who is a a former sheriff's uh, a sergeant in the sheriff's department, and you have Craig Owens, a, a major in the Cobb County Police Department. So so he's got some he's got some terrific challenges here ahead of him. You know, uh, Patricia, we talked a minute ago about whether David Perdue tries to separate himself a bit to win an ever blueing more blue Georgia. Here's Neil Warren, who is as far to the right in terms of his law enforcement practices as you can be. He uh, rounds up Ill- Ill- undocumented immigrants. He ships them off to uh, to ICE, and uh, almost everything you can say, he lines up with President Trump. And and here he is running in a county that's increasingly blue, which is why I think uh, Galloway's column is fascinating. I, yeah, I think the column was so interesting. And you just have to juxtapose um, the sheriff's past electoral success with what is happening in Cobb County. And Hillary Clinton and Stacey Abrams both won Cobb County. Yep. Right. Yep. And so uh, for a sheriff who is not only, um, I think, unapologetically uh, aggressive on illegal immigration and was voted— Fox News is among the top 10 sheriffs across the country for illegal immigration. Um, It makes no apologies about it. Um, But then if you layer on uh, potential incompetence or lack of transparency, I think that's when you get into real problems. Yeah, I also think, Mo, that this is the crisis, I think is a fair word, at the the jail, the county jail, is only going to get larger because we now have community groups coming together, having public meetings recently. Sure, the ACLU. So this Mm -hmm. thing is going to grow, and he's going to have to face it square on. Absolutely. And there always comes a reckoning time. You can, you know, you go on, you go on, you go on until something drops so hard that then you're at that moment of reckoning. And you mentioned, Jim, that there were seven deaths up until in 2018, right? Well, there's been, um, it hasn't been confirmed yet, but the number of how how many deaths there have been since he's been the sheriff is well into the 40s. Right. And yeah, so, I mean, when I read the story that um, one of the deaths of the seven was from a lack of, a de- died of dehydration, a basic give this person some water. That's what we're talking about here. So there is just um, I don't know if he'll be able to come back with this. He also has ethical um, campaign finance. Yeah, misuse of campaign uh, yeah, funds have hanging campaign over his finance. head. Yeah. So I think that this is um, I'm not a betting woman, but I think he's on his way out. Let me just say that. Brian, he's a survivor. Uh, he is a survivor. And and. and Jim, Jim's right. I mean, this we are. He is facing a serious electoral challenge here. But let me go to the deaths in the in the jailhouse. I am not going to just immediately point a finger at the sheriff on this. One was a suicide, and and for the life of me, I, I, I scratch my head on why sheriffs and jail authorities get blamed for for suicides. It seems to me the person did it themselves. Those other six died while in a hospital. They were providing not top-notch care there. These aren't people coming in off the streets perfectly healthy. Many of them have drug addiction issues. They're not necessarily going getting preventive care at doctors and their normal lives outside of jail. Okay, so, but— and so, and so, no, 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 no. So they come in, and somebody something happens in a jail. It's like, oh, the sheriff's being negligent. Not, not necessarily. Okay, we are I just virtually say out one, of time. Yeah, I just want to say one thing, that when somebody commits suicide, you can't just say, well, it was because of— uh, they did it by themselves when the circumstances could have been if you weren't able to make a phone call to your lawyer and you've been unjustly in jail for three months and you cannot stand those conditions and you kill yourself because of that, then you have uh, killed yourself because of the conditions That's a lot in of the speculation. Jail. All no, right, but we, that so is assuming that they just came okay, in mentally ill. You guys want to come back and talk about this in more depth because it's a great story sure. and the election will play out and so will this crisis. We will do that. Uh, thank you all so much for being with us. Patricia Murphy, Mo Ivory, Brian Robinson, Jim Galloway. I'll see you again on Monday at 2, Mr. Galloway. In the meantime, hope you all have a great weekend out there. See you on Monday. <laughs>